Welcome to Extraordinary People, a podcast series from UK Healthcare. The stories you'll hear are from patients who've overcome the most challenging moments of their lives, and our providers who've helped thousands of patients navigate those moments. In August of last year, 13-year-old Levi Yoder accidentally severed his left hand with a saw while working on his family's farm. Surgeons from the UK Healthcare Hand Center successfully replanted the Amish boy's hand, and a team of therapists helped him regain almost full functionality. The following interview is with Dr. Chase Klumper, who oversaw Levi's care. Dr. Klumper discusses the uniqueness of Levi's case and how UK Healthcare was prepared to take it on. The questions here have been recreated for audio purposes. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Klumper. To start, could you walk us through Levi's case? So he um, injured himself about lunchtime, if I remember right, uh, maybe one, something like that. He Im immediately um, was taken to one of the community hospitals who recognized that it was, this was needed to be escalated, and so then he was transferred um, as urgently as possible to our ER. Our orthopedic residents were on the spot, ready to go. They saw him. The whole system was triggered even before he arrived. Um, and then I personally was kind of wrapping up a, a, a clinic day and, and uh, got a phone call and some messages and said, all right, here we go, you know. So it's one of those uh, drop everything and um, that uh, – that, that becomes your, your um, plan for the rest of the night. So um, he, I think we got him to the OR um, about 4 o'clock, if I remember right. It maybe happened at 1230 or 1. So we, we had him in the OR about three hours after it happened, maybe four. Um, and there's obviously a time-sensitive component to these types of injuries, right? So when you amputate a part of the hand or any part of your body, the vessels change. They slowly undergo a process that uh, prevents them from accepting new blood flow even after you hook it up um, and so you got to intervene before that happens or while it's happening and if you don't then uh, it's unsuccessful so yeah um, I spent a little bit of time with him right before the surgery um, maybe a two-minute three-minute conversation to try and expedite it um, we immediately took the hand and started working on it on what we call the back table, which is basically a, a setup that's kind of semi-sterile prior to getting Levi ready to go. Um, and that helped um, Dr. Winter, our fellow, went through and identified important structures that we would then find the reciprocal uh, part on his stump, um, and that saves time. So it's all about how quickly can you get the patient there, how quickly can you identify the structures that need to be repaired, in this case arteries, um, to to get blood flow to the hand, um, and then it's go time. So as soon as he arrived in the uh, operating room, um, he was put to sleep by our great anesthesia team. Uh, we started working on his, uh, his arm uh, and his wrist where the amputation happened, and Dr. Winter was on the table a few feet away working on the amputated part. Um, and at some point after you identify enough structures, you combine the two, and um, at that point, it's uh, your kind of your studying kicks in and your your practice kicks in, and um, uh, the sequence of events for this type of surgery is bony stabilization. So that's number one. Not because 
phones are that important, but because without structure, the tension on the vessels change. So if I put, if I hook up a vessel without fixing the bone, then there's no stability. It's like spaghetti that's just got no uh, tension on it, right? So I could rip it apart or tear it uh, um, uh, with a little inadvertent motion. So we stabilize first. I think one of our residents was in there, um, Dr. Nizal. He was helping uh, pin some metacarpals. And then we started the, the part that really defines whether or not this is going to survive, and that's the, the vessel anastomosis, the sewing of the vessels. So um, in this case, it was a large saw blade, which means there's a lot of tearing of the tissue, and um, they, those vessels shorten. They retract, basically, after you cut them. Uh, they, they retract, and so they're hard to find. And finding good vessels is um, uh, a very tedious process, and uh, you also have to be very gentle in your search because when you're looking for them, if you disrupt them inadvertently, um, that could sink the whole process, the whole the whole surgery. So you very carefully look for them, identify them. We use um, medication in the OR to keep them open and try to help facilitate flow. And then you begin, you bring in the microscope once you've got the two ends ready to go, and and you start uh, sewing. And it's essentially like. Um, trying to connect a, a severed hose in the front yard, you know, you use microscopic sutures uh, under huge magnification and use tiny uh, instruments and you sew one suture at a time around in a circumferential manner, um, similar to kind of maybe putting on a hubcap um, on a car where you want to start on this side and that side and you kind of balance out until you filled all the holes um, and, and then you allow blood flow to come in. So prior to the sewing, you've put on a tourniquet um, or clamped the vessel so that no inflow happens. So he's got blood flowing through his whole body, but we need it to stop right at the source of the anastomosis so we can kind of do our work, and then we let it go. And that's the, you know, the, the part where you're hoping it stays patent or open. And once we got one, we found another, and then no time for celebrating. We, we immediately got to find a vein um, because if you pump a bunch of blood into an area, it has to have a, a way to go out or else it doesn't, um, it doesn't go well. So um, we found a, a good vein, and at then it was like, okay, now we can take a deep breath. We can get the microscope out and start working on all the nerves, all the tendons, um, all the muscle, and then the skin. So we spent, you know, it was probably a seven or eight hour surgery, and, um, uh, you know, the great, you know, you can high five when you're leaving the OR, right? You know, you're you're proud of your work and you're happy for the kid and the family. But, you know, you go to immediately to talk to the family, and I spoke with them, um, you know, five minutes after scrubbing out, and said, "Listen, you know, just because we're happy right now um, doesn't unfortunately mean that this happiness is going to last, right? Um, within 48 hours is the time period where most replantations go down, meaning for whatever reason the vessels." That process that's ongoing immediately when you cut a vessel um, uh, is more powerful than your repair sometimes, and a clot develops um, or another process happens that impedes inflow. Uh, sometimes the outflow, the vein, is impeded, and that can cause problems too. So it's a very tenuous um, two or three days after surgery. 
once you make it out of that two or three day window, um, things are starting to be on the up and up. And that's when um, the, the, the nursing care around the clock, uh, that first 48 hours is so important. The nurses help us all night long listening to the vessels, um, making sure his perfusion uh, is there, his capillary refill, and then obviously taking care of any pain. Um, so it is a all hands on deck type of uh, approach. It is not, none of the, you couldn't get an outcome like he got without any one of those processes. All those people are, are, are super important. Um, it doesn't happen without any of them. How complex was Levi's case? Is it something you see a lot of or is it pretty atypical? You know, that surgery and um, high level hands, hand surgery um, that's about as hard as it gets. There's not much in my field that is more difficult than that. Um, a mid-palmer amputation involving the thumb um, is, we call it a zone three, just we divide the hand into zones, and um, that zone three mid-palmer amputation is about as hard as it gets. Um, and then even if, um, you know, if you had 10 people who had that injury, right? Um, nine of them would not get the result that, that Levi got. Um, and that's primarily based on his therapy afterwards. The outcome, you know, we can hook the vessels up and, you know, we're trained to do that. And, um, you know, I think we did, we did a good job, but we can restore the, the, um, the viability to his hand without those therapists. So. Sarah Bisher at Shriners was awesome. Matt Rose and the whole team at our UK Hand Therapy um, Center. Um, they really are the ones that are able to facilitate a great outcome. You know, we can give him his hand back if we're lucky and we try hard and we're, we're ready to go and the whole system works. But without that follow-up, that outpatient therapy, his range of motion is not the same. And uh, a hand with, you know, little motion, chronic pain, swelling, that's not the outcome that you want, you know. It's better than not having a hand, but, but if you can get the motion that he has, the sensation that he has, um, that strength that he's gaining, that's really the, the, the slam dunk that you're looking for. From a surgical standpoint, what are the keys to getting a hand to the point where you have an opportunity to restore function? Um, blood vessels are the first step, right? But um, like we were talking about, the, having a hand that's not sensate, that you can't feel, um, that you can't manipulate objects with, you don't have the motion to grasp, the strength, um, that's, not the, that's not the goal, right? You know, you, <laughs> prosthetics can give you a non-sensate thing that looks like a hand, you know? What you want is the motion and the sensation and the feedback. Um, and part of the, his success, Levi, is um, his age, you know? He's there at 13, um, he can heal um, like miraculously, right? It is truly a miracle. Um, you or I wouldn't have gotten the outcome, even if every other step was the same. It's just based on age. Um, but nerves heal about a millimeter a day after they're cut, and if you realign the axons perfectly. Um, and so, you know, we obviously spent a long time with more microscopic suture finding each nerve and, um, and sewing them back together. When a saw blade rips through an area, it damages um, a few centimeters of tissue on either side besides the width of the blade. You know, it rips, it pulls, and it uh, tears. And so we have to do a job. <clears throat> Our job is to 
kind of trim, what we say, trim back, uh, meaning get out of the zone of injury for those structures. And mostly that's for nerves, but also for vessels um, and bones as well. So, um, you know, we spend time dissecting back and trimming back um, the nerves till they're fresh and they're not, you know, ripped like the end of a, a mop or something. They're, they're, um, they got to be fresh and ready to be uh, sewed back together, okay, like two cut-ins of spaghetti. And if that doesn't happen, then axons can escape. The nerve is trying to reach its targets. And if it doesn't have a tube to go down uh, that's prepped and ready to receive it, then it may reach out over here and you may get um, tingling and pain down there. You may develop what's called a neuroma, which is just an angry ball of nerves that's looking for a target. We want it to go to back to its original target. So nerves are kind of complex and it's a, um, but luckily, you know, the way that we were made and the, the miracle of the body is that if you put him, you realign it well, uh, it will grow back, especially in a 13-year-old. So he has almost normal sensation, which is, um, ah, it's just truly incredible. How much more complex is it to replant a hand versus a digit, like a pinky or a finger? Is that, is there additional complexity or is it pretty similar? They're very, they're pretty similar. Obviously, it's just more work with the hand. Um, so a couple of things you have to consider is that the hand has more muscle in it than the fingers do. There's really no true muscle in the finger. There are tendons, but there's no true muscle in the finger. Muscle um, uh, dies more quickly. It can't go as long. And so you have less, of, less time, there's less room for error in, the, in a hand replant when there's muscle involved. Same for an amputation that happens at the forearm or the elbow, okay? It's gotta be now. Um, and, and, a, and a finger does too because those vessels will shut down, but um, we have some tricks to, to keep, to maybe prolong that by a few hours. It, by and large, it's the same process. You stabilize the bone, you hook up the vessels, and you hope it works. Uh, but the, the elephant in the room is that one finger, unless it's the thumb, um, people do really well with just the loss of a finger. And, um, you know, I know you're, as a hand surgeon, you, people be like, well, you're supposed to, you're supposed to love every finger, you're supposed to save every finger. But the truth is, if you have a stiff, painful finger, it just gets in the way. Um, so yeah, we can replant it uh, most of the time, or some of the time, and um, it might heal, but if it's stiff and painful, then it's not of use to you, if you have all the other ones, at least, um, and it's not the thumb. Uh, but a hand on the other point, on the other hand, um, is, uh, is obviously, that's the difference in quality of life for the rest of this kid's life, you know? So he, he will now have bimanual uh, activities available to him. There's no prosthetic that we know of, that we have invented yet, that comes anywhere close to the biology that we were born with. So, um, you know, the, 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 the idea is the same, uh, but the hand is, uh, the, the mid-pulmonary amputation is much harder. And um, at the end of the day, if you lose one finger, it's, you know, life goes on pretty well. So. What was the family able to do when Levi initially injured himself that helped the process before they got to the hospital? I don't know who amongst them did that. Uh, it's a great family. Um, I know his big, his older brother was there with him when the injury happened. His dad was there and they immediately flagged down a driver. Um, somewhere along the way, they did exactly what you are 
uh, all, what all, we are all supposed to do with an amputated part. That is, they wrapped it in gauze that is soaked in saline, so wet gauze. Um, around the house, if you don't have gauze, you can use a washcloth, okay? Wet washcloth, and then you, you wrap the amputated part in that and put that in a Ziploc bag. You take that Ziploc bag and you put that Ziploc bag on ice. You don't put the amputated part in ice directly, and you don't uh, float it in water, um, but you you get a little insulation, but keep it as cold as possible, and that prolongs the time that we have to 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 put it back on. So, um, you know, they t talk about the six-hour window, um, twelve hours sometimes in a finger because there's no muscle, but six-hour if it's if it's cold um, for a, for a hand replant is what we're we're going for. When you first met him, was Levi in shock? How did he respond to this situation? That kid is about as cool as they come. You know, he, um, from the moment I saw him in pre-op, which was three hours after it happened, till two weeks ago when I saw him at six months post-op, I never once saw him tear up, complain, um, you know, ask why, you know, woe is me. That kid was all about the work, all about the recovery, the process. He was grateful. He was fun to work with. He was kind. He was super strong. And um, that's a testament to his parents, obviously, and, and him himself. Um, but, you know, when it first happens, you have bleeding um, that's pretty extensive and arterial, right? So, um, and so that was probably a huge shock to him and his brother and his dad. And they, uh, from what I heard, wrapped it immediately, the stump, that is, um, to compress, to provide a tourniquet so that he wouldn't lose blood uh, that would compromise his life, and um, which is possible. They also, um, as I said, talk, you know, package the amputated part correctly. Um, some people, believe it or not, will forget to bring the amputated part. Uh, it's more common than you might think because you're not thinking about, you know, six months from now when it happens, you're thinking about someone help me stop this uh, bleeding, stop this pain, I gotta get to a hospital quick, and then you get there and you realize you, you snap out of your shock a little bit and you think, oh, it's it's in, it's in the wood, it's in the garage, you know, my thumb's in the garage, or the, you know, um, so that's where EMTs can help though because uh, so 911 operator, the first responders that get there by the ambulance, um, they all are trained to to look for that, identify it, find it, and transport it in the correct way. What steps were taken to get Levi ready for therapy, and how quickly did he get to begin that after leaving the hospital? So, you know, when he, we let him go home, it was a big day, you know, from the hospital, right? He'd made his way from the OR to the intensive care, uh, had gotten round-the-clock checks and was still, um, still doing well. And then he made his way to the floor. We did a dressing change. Um, Jessica and I were there uh, for the dressing change, and the inpatient occupational therapist at Chandler helped to create a, an orthosis, which is like a hard-removable cast shell. But at that point, you know, the hand is super swollen. It looks up, it blows up like a balloon um, until, all, until the body recannulates or reforms these veins besides the one that we repaired to kind of help get the fluid out. And so he's got pins sticking out of his, of his skin. It, it looks, um, you compare that first picture of his hand uh, after surgery to what it is now, and it's, you know, three times the size and scary looking. Um, but, you know, he came back within a few days to therapy to begin the process, and um, it was uh, 
uh, you know, he, we, he was like a celebrity. We knew he was coming. We went down to meet him when he got, got here, walked him up carefully, unpacked everything. And, you know, everybody's fingers crossed that it's still pink and perfused. And, um, and then you set to work with the therapy protocol. So, you know, Matt would be good to, to and, and Sarah would be good to tell you more, but basically edema control first, right? Prevent, prevent any infection, make sure we're looking at the wounds, there's no drainage, no infection, and then edema control. And so we try to um, elevate to try to help the fluid move out of the hand. Um, you know, edema, swelling in the hand is the enemy for us. Um, it prevents motion. And um, again, like we've been talking about, a hand without motion is not useful. So um, getting the swelling down, getting, getting him some gentle motion. Um, we don't lift or anything in those first few weeks because the bones are still healing uh, and, and the tendons, of course, are still healing. So it's all about passive and active motion, um, whatever he has. Uh, we try to improve that, but we're not torturing him. This is still a very much a tenuous um, kind of thing. And, so they put him through a range of exercises. Uh, week after week, he would come uh, multiple times per week. And um, eventually, we get the, the pins out of the bones, and that helps with his pain. The tendons start gliding. You got to keep those tendons gliding while they heal, because if they scar down and then they heal, well, again, that's the motion thing. So it's got to be, you got to force yourself to move it through the pain. And I've um, never seen a kid like him force himself to move it and, and not complain. It was incredible. Um, and we see a lot of kids that, that do this stuff. You know, Shriners, uh, we, we operate at Shriners a lot. Um, Scott Riley's over there fixing kids' tendons all the time. Uh, Dr. O'Shaughnessy and I go over there and, and the same thing. So, you know, with children, distraction and videos and stickers and all kinds of wonderful things um, for, for them can help. But, man, he didn't need that stuff. He was very business, business-like, um, went about his work with therapy, knew his exercises. His mom stayed on him doing the exercises at home. Um, and, uh, and I wasn't there to watch, but I know for sure, based on his improvement day after day, that she was. Um, so that process with therapy is really the most important thing uh, for the six months following surgery. Uh, I just kind of, at that point, I'm a bystander and say, okay, I think that you know, the bone's healed enough to do this, the tendons are healed enough to do that, but you know, Matt and Sarah are the ones that are in there measuring his motion day by day, testing his sensation, um, trying to get his edema down, measuring the circumference of his hand, and really quantifying all that stuff for us so we can check off uh, benchmarks and, and compare notes from previous uh, uh, therapy visits, and um, and proud of those people. What differentiates the therapist at the UK Healthcare Hand Center? You know, all of our therapists are certified hand therapists, which means they went to OT or PT school, did um, thousands of hours extra, specifically focused on the hand. So it's an extra certificate. They are specialists in their field. Um, you can't walk into every uh, PT uh, place in, in every city and find a certified hand therapist, okay? so. They themselves, the five that we have, all have extensive experience. They are fun to work with. They are um, uh, smart and knowledgeable and great in patient care. And it's uh, just a relief, right? So, you know, I see a patient that I know what needs to happen for them, but if I don't trust or know the person I'm sending them to, there's always that doubt. And then I, I maybe I see them in three or four weeks and, and I, um, 
you know, I've sent them a, a prescription to go to someplace outlying, and I said, this is what we, we need, is what we want, but if I don't know that person, you know, no, through no fault of their own, they may not know exactly what needs to be done, despite us trying to pass that information along. So having them right there for me to you, and I can say, how's, how are we doing on excursion of the uh, FPL tendon, or, or, you know, what's his wrist motion like? Um, it's a relief and, and we know that they're taken care of. Now, there are other certified hand therapists throughout the state that do a great job, and so we've really tried at the hand center, because we get people from four hours away, um, to identify those people. And so if someone is hurt in hazard, we see them and do their surgery. We may see them for a couple post-op follow-ups and our therapists will work with them when they're here, but they need, as we talked about with Levi, the, the more therapy visits they have, the better their outcome will be. And so, you know, I've developed some relationships with people in the outlying um, areas and they're experts as well, um, but that relationship is huge. If you don't trust the person that is helping take care of your patient, uh, there's, that's a yeah, sleepless night, you know. Tell us a little bit more about Matt Rose. So Matt um, is our head therapist and he came on board when we were creating the hand center. And so Dr. David Drake, who kind of had the, the vision <clears throat> or enacted the vision, um, was looking for a head therapist. And so he had tons of experience, Matt, um, in a couple different locations around the area. Um, and he was very well trained um, and had thousands of hours of experience. But when he came here, he had to then identify and recruit talented CHTs uh, and bring them under our roof, right? So it is not that easy because you have to um, know them well enough to uh, be comfortable with their skill set. It's almost like recruiting our residents and fellows. Um, you have to interview them, you have to review their, their casework and their accolades, and finding five people um, that, you know, all get along, all take excellent care of patients is a, another step up in the challenge of, of of his job, you know, I mean, he was used to patient care. He's used to, I know how to get edema out of a finger and I know how to get tenant excursion, but then he had to step up to administrative uh, tasks and, and he's done a great job with that because the, the therapists we have now are fantastic. How does the volume of patients that UK Healthcare sees play a role in improving the quality of care that they receive? With every um, injury, there's variations in, in how severe. And so I think in all of healthcare, really, um, you know, you can go through a five-year residency and a year fellowship and start practicing. Um, I'm speaking about my own journey. and But you don't really get to be comfortable with everything until you're kind of get your Get, your, uh, get settled in the job and you've seen enough and you've been awake at night, um, you know, doing every type of variation on, on, a, um, on an injury. And so I think some of that applies to, to them as well. So if you're in a setting where you're just seeing trigger finger post-ops and, you know, a couple exercises, uh, but you didn't see a patient who had trigger finger and rheumatoid and tore that tendon seven years ago, you know, um, those little details matter and that experience then translates to a better outcome. So for the hand center, I think, <clears throat> you know, yes, UK is a huge referral center, 
tons of patients and we filled up the hand sitter quickly. But I've noticed since we started um, an increase in volume because of people's outcomes, uh, I think primarily, um, plus word of mouth and this stuff. Um, but you know, this was by far the busiest winter um, that I can remember, well, you know, I've been here three years, but this is the busiest winter that we've had at the hand center in terms of volume. Um, and hand, you know, is a kind of a cyclical thing. You know, people get hurt more often in the warm months. They're out there on their motorcycles or they're uh, in the wood shop in the warmer months, you know, and, and towards the end of the year when people have met their medical deductibles, sometimes they want to get their elective carpal tunnel or something done um, before uh, December 31st and then the January can be a little bit of a reboot um, and a little bit slower but this January has been um, super busy and um, I think it's just a testament to what we're doing you know we uh, created something that's working and kind of filled a need in the community um, and you know people seem to be pretty happy with their outcomes and so then they word of mouth and, and um, we're we're humming along right now how important is it for UK healthcare to be an academic medical center? What, what does that do to kind of separate what we do from other hospitals? To give some credit to the, the residents, um, you know, we couldn't do what we do without them. Um, and then inversely, they wouldn't be able to then deliver the same care in their careers without us. Um, so it's an awesome symbiotic relationship. But um, more than that, you know, everyone takes parts of their training and then delivers it to whatever community they end up in. So I trained for fellowship at a place where they kind of invented the surgeon-therapist relationship and the Philly Hand Center in Philadelphia. So um, when I was able to see that and how important it was to walk a few steps instead of telling a patient to drive, you know, that was immediately I was like, okay, well, I got to find this in my job or at least a plan for this. And we didn't have it when we started here, but it was in the works and we, we made it happen. Um, so from an academic perspective, I'm trying to, uh, you know, O'Shaughnessy and I and Drake uh, and Bergach are all trying to, uh, and Dr. Riley as well, trying to deliver that snippet or that window of excellence to the residents and show them, you know, what we want them to take and then deliver elsewhere. And so, I don't know, I think the legacy that you can leave um, by teaching is, is um, almost as important as the legacy you can leave uh, by patient care. Tell us a little bit about the fellowship program through the Hand Center and what that looks like compared to a residency for, for somebody who's listening that might not um, be as well versed in the medical world. So we have a fellowship, one-year fellowship, and so Jessica Winter is our fellow right now. Um, all of us provide um, some amount of didactic training and surgical training, uh, mostly focused on her, but also for the residents. And she's been just a fantastic uh, fellow this year. She's a lot of fun to work with, an excellent um, surgeon. Um, she's Canadian, and I, th I think maybe going back there, but we hope that... Uh, you know, maybe she'll keep us in mind one day too. But um, having a fellow, so a fellow is someone who's done their residency, um, five or six years, depending on 
uh, the program and they've developed a skill set and they have developed a wide field of stuff that they could go into or they're interested in but they decide that they want to do hand surgery and so then they come from all over the country um, and, and they spend a one year um, in, in training full-on uh, hand and, and dedicated to what they want to do in the future and that has been um, an unexpected uh, joy for me. I, I really like working with uh, the fellows. So we've had three, um, Jason, uh, Dr. Johnson, um, Dr. Vabra, and now Dr. Winter. And so um, we're growing that part of it as well. And so we have learners now at all levels. So we have medical students. Dr. Shaughnessy runs a med student um, program and they're in our clinic all the time. And you know the things that they're learning are so much different than the things that the fellows are learning, right? So um, you know the medical students are learning the ba the very basics, and um, and that's great, and they need to learn that. And then the residents are kind of the next step up, and there's different levels of residents. So the second year um, is is a lot greener than the fourth year, and then the fellow is like uh, about to go into practice, and that you're just perfecting tiny little things right before they they leave, and so. Um, I didn't realize starting academics. I knew I wanted to teach. You know, I like to uh, give give talks and discuss things that you know um, didactic kind of stuff. But I didn't realize how um, rewarding and and also challenging, difficult it would be to tailor your your teaching to different levels of learners. Um, you say something that is like you know the sky is blue because you've researched it and, and know it like the back of your hand, but this, you know, poor <laughs> med student looks at you like you're crazy and, and then you have to just check yourself and remember, hey, um, you know, it's a graduated thing. That's it. That's all of us took that long and, and, and Mark, you know, climbed up that ladder. Um, but the, having the fellow on top of the residence has been um, a lot of fun. And so we're looking to grow that. And, and um, it also helps with stuff like this case, you know. Um, having people ready to go that are hungry for the most difficult, the most challenging surgeries and are ready to go at the drop of a hat um, is pretty important uh, both for uh, the system and the ability to care for patients but you know also for us and for for them and their education. Dr. Klumper, we can't thank you enough for your time. Just to finish this, what's Levi's prognosis? How's he doing today? So Levi is going to get a fantastic outcome. He's going to be, he's already shooting squirrels and uh, catching bass. Um, I'll talk, share a funny story uh, that, um, you know, in the first few days after surgery, we don't allow patients that have done a replant to uh, do certain things. We don't allow them to get up and run down the hall, right? Um, we don't allow them to consume cough, uh, caffeine. So, and that's hard for people, right? Ca coffee, I mean, I'd be, I've really struggled with that. Um, or, you know, Pepsi or whatever people like to drink. No caffeine, because caffeine clamps down the vessels that we need to be open to deliver blood. So chocolate coming from the same bean um, also uh, has vasoconstrictive um, mechanism to it. And so it's just, you know, it's part of the protocol. No coffee, uh, no caffeine, no chocolate. Um, and some other things and so you know as resolute and stoic as a kid he was he uh, and mature he took it all in stride said of course no cough no no this no that no chocolate and um, you know as time passes you're getting excited and you're talking about what are you gonna do at home and this and that and, and um, you forget that you gave those restrictions right? 
And um, so he left the hospital. We're all high-fiving. We're happy to see him in the therapy, and we're monitoring his progress, and everybody's so happy. And um, come about three months post-op, um, as a matter of fact, right after Halloween, um, <laughs> uh, he, he met, I asked him, you know, oh, did you get some candy and this and that? He said, oh, yeah, you know, I got some, but I wish I could have chocolate. I'm like, why couldn't you have chocolate? He said, well, you told me uh, in the hospital you can't have chocolate. And I was like, oh. I robbed this kid of chocolate for the last three months, so we gave him a big a load of, uh, of Reese's and Hershey's to take home. But uh, sorry, Levi, if you're watching. Um, it's good for your health, I suppose, but a 13-year-old kid deserves some chocolate, so <laughs> feast away. But his, you know, his stoicism and his determination really was, was hugely important. His mother's, um, they never missed a, me a, a visit for therapy or a visit with me. They were there every time, on time. They did the exercises at home. Um, I have no doubt that uh, some of the um, rigidity or some of the structure to their life outside of this incident played a role on his, his recovery from this. Um, he's a hardworking kid. You know, he does the family chores. He helps build wood, uh, uh, build furniture from wood. He takes care of the animals on the farm. And, um, and you know, if he were, Maybe a, a kid who um, didn't do those types of things, he might not have uh, gotten the outcome. But everybody was on their A game. Everybody was at peak performance from the EMT to the nurses to us to the therapists and to Levi and his home situation. So um, really couldn't have been a better outcome all the way around. This episode of Extraordinary People was brought to you by the UK Healthcare Brand Strategy Team. If you were a patient at UK Healthcare and would like to share your story, please visit ukhealthcare.com stories. We would love to help you tell it. Thank you for listening.